This morning, as we continue our studies in Gospel of John, we're in a very unique study uh, because the passage is very unique. Uh, but most of us, if not all of us, are so familiar with this story because um, this is one of the most well-known, popular stories. <clears throat> but there's a, such a unique side of this passage, uh, I think we need to get a glimpse of an overview of today's passage. John 7, verse 53, to chapter 8, 11. Some of you have already noticed that the strange thing about this section is there's a double bracket. Starting with verse 53 and verse 11 of chapter 8. Now, why is that? Because it was not a part of John's original writings of his gospel. And that is, even ESV, English Standard Version, will have this uh, small title of above the bracket. The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. So almost all scholars agree that it was not part of the original, the first manuscript of John's Gospel. Um, <clears throat> until 1516 AD, uh, William Tyndale came up with the idea of uh, not only the mechanism and science to reproduce Bibles in a mass uh, way. In other words, a printing technique came about around 1516, and that which helped the Reformation when Martin Luther set up uh, and <clears throat> pounded that the thesis on the door of the church. Um, because of that, average people were able to read the Bible from that point on. But before 1500, the scripture, as we know, was handed down to very only few people. Why? Because the first, obviously because the the, the time issue, we have only little pieces of even early manuscripts, not the whole thing. The manuscript meaning the people will copy the copies, and then copies the copies. So the earlier the manuscript is, the more reliant, reliable that document is. But vast majority of early scripts, uh, early manuscripts doesn't include this part. And then furthermore, some other la latter uh, manuscripts include this part in other parts of Gospel of John or Gospel of Luke. So the scholars concluded that it was not part of the original John's Gospel. However, most scholars, if not all, unanimously agree that this was a true story, a real-life incident that happened during Jesus' public ministry. There are many other similar stories in uh, extra-biblical extra sources indicate as well. And as, as Apostle John, at the end of his gospel, uh, notes that there are many signs that Jesus performed which could not be included in this, his gospel, he says. Um, so what, what do we conclude in this? There are some churches, 
and the pastors will skip this part altogether. Oh, it doesn't have the, the divine revelation and authority, supreme authority. But I think it's a mistake. Because when you think about, when we think about New Testament, how New Testament has become the canonization, the final conclusion of these are the scriptures, the process we were looking at it, is that early first century church, there was no written form of the Gospels, right? Acts chapter 2. And it simply referred to they devoted to apostles' teaching. The first witnesses of those 11 disciples who walked with Jesus every day, they were the living Bible, Scripture. Whatever they taught became authoritative. And I'm sure these stories were, although not included in the first uh, manuscript of John's Gospel, passed down unto the generations of the church. And that's why we, see, we have seen this, uh, the older Bibles, older translations all include that as if there's nothing wrong with that. But the newer one um, indicates clearly uh, the technical term for that is a textual criticism. It's a science to, to uh, indicate and find out which was really included in the original manuscript. So which, which is a good, good practice. Uh, and as we're looking at this, I think there are so many valuable lessons for everyone in today's world. And because it was a valuable uh, story that produces so many uh, lessons, and it was passed down onto throughout the church as well. Actual story itself, because it's a real incident and true story, we need to be aware of this was a very unique story. It was a setup to test Jesus so that the religious authorities and scribes and Pharisees can trap Jesus by an inescapable dilemma. As our moderator Stan read, uh, dilemma was perfect from human point of view. So basically, these authorities, basically, uh, scribes and Pharisees were the parallel of modern-day Bible-believing Christians. They saw the authority of the Scripture, which is the Old Testament, as something not just to revere, but true, to be obeyed. And the Mosaic Law in Leviticus and Deuteronomy states the cases of death sentence, execution, by stoning, one of them was adultery. And they're basically saying, Moses told us to stone such a woman. We caught her in the very act of adultery. What do you say? So suppose Jesus said, oh darn it, go ahead and stone her. And then whatever Jesus has taught, Jesus was nicknamed as a sinner of sinner, I mean friend of sinners who always welcomed sinners. And that teaching of grace and mercy would be nullified. Moreover, the problem was 
even crucifixion of Jesus, who had to get involved? Romans. They were under Roman rule. The, the death sentence was only given by the Roman authorities. So if Jesus had stoned her, and then Roman, Jesus gets in big trouble with the Roman uh, authorities. If Jesus doesn't, says, oh, don't stone her, and then he nullifies the Mosaic law, goes against, and they could trap him either way. And this is so obvious to modern people. Let me just say obvious things. Because they were trying to trap Jesus, and this was a setup, they were really not interested in upholding Mosaic law. They're interested in getting Jesus get trapped so that they could kill him, do away with him. Because even, even Deuteronomy in that Le- Leviticus, any man and woman who was caught in adultery would be stoned. Where is the man? It takes two people to have an adultery. So some commentators say, say this could be a deliberately set of adultery. Maybe she's a very loose woman sexually. Uh, uh, town, whole town knows about her lifestyle. But using one of their men to trap her and, and get that act going on and then trap him. Okay, so maybe that's a little far-fetched. So some, some commentators will say, by coincidence, they caught them in the act. But the man was very familiar man to the scribes and Pharisees, and they let him go. Because they only need a woman to trap Jesus. Um, and it, this kind of reminds me the important aspect of real Jesus. And, um, sometimes we patronize the like a good-looking, gentle, soft-spoken Jesus only. And who's really not intellectually smart he just smiles a lot but when you look at this how Jesus comes out of this trap it is incredible his wisdom is incredible and Dallas Willer correctly points out we need to remember the Christians of today that Jesus is the smartest person than whom you can follow And the wisest Lord. <clears throat> so what I like to do is take a look at the story again with this background. Let's reread it and pay attention to the details and the sayings and ask why. Why did he say that? Why did he ask that? Why did he do that? And then I'd like to draw lessons for each one of us and our community, church community. So allow me to read John chapter 7, verse 53, to chapter 8, 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery, Now in the law, Moses commanded us 
to stone such woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Here's a lesson number one from this story. Jesus is a friend for sinners and forgives their sins by his own blood. And the important thing that we need to realize is what he did. He scooped down, wrote on the ground with his finger. This is the passage we have most speculation from not to mention the commentators, but every single one of us wonder, what did he write? But let's ask why he did that. Can you just visualize, imagine that they're dragging her? Maybe she wasn't even properly loaded, trying to cover her shame. Her hair is all messed up. It's probably the horrifying, mortifying situation that anybody, not to mention woman, including men, would like to avoid. The sneering eyes says so much thousand words of judgment and condemnation. But by Jesus scooping down and writing with his finger, he took the shaming attention from her. Now everybody's focused on Jesus. He did, he did that for a while. They couldn't just watch him. They kept on asking him again, what's your answer? What are you doing? And he stood up again. Let any one of you without sin, the without sin is not just a sinless, but sinlessness. If you're sinless, let him be the first one to throw stone. Let him be the de-judge, the lead judge condemns this woman. We'll talk about that a little bit later. So they went away, one by one. And then notice what Jesus said. He stood up and said to her, verse 10, Woman, where are they? Has no one 
condemn you? Why did he say that? He has eyes. He just noticed what happened, obvious things. This question is more for her than him. He's not seeking more accurate information from her. So you were condemned and every shameful judgment was on you, the sneering eyes were on you. But notice, it's all gone. Do you see that? And her simple answer, no one, Lord. And this Lord is a respectable person. In our equivalent day, our day, modern days, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. If you taste the amazing grace of Jesus, that deep sense of awe of his grace being amazing comes from your deep realization of your how awful and terrifying the ugly sins you have. The shame. When you are found out with your sin, the first thing that comes as a consequence of sin is shame. Even Adam and Eve they felt the shame and they hid themselves. They covered themselves. This is not somebody else's story. This is my story and your story. And there remember time that when I see the light of the gospel, that my sins were exposed. It's not just something I did that was so horrifyingly terrible, but it's just the attitude I have that I could live without God, apart from God, including that indifference from God, about God, was an awful sin. I became my idol. Idolatry was happening. So this morning, some of you are reminded of your past sins. Awful sin that you, it's a deep, dark secret that you, you don't even want to share with your close friends. And you only know sometimes. It could be unhealthy relationships, sexual relationships, before your current marriage. Or it, it, it could be some of the unhealthy habits with porn, with alcohol, with drugs that you remember this dark valley and dark room in which you felt hopeless and helpless. It could be abortion that you secretly did that the shame come from time after time in spite of what woman's rights movement might say in your heart the guilt is there it could be the betrayal that you rationalize about your relationship or it could be some of the awful things and yet rationalize on the outside so clean And we want to take away our attention from that. It's called denial, by the way. And Jesus says, look at it. Neither do I condemn you. If the passage teaches us something, 
we need to be aware of this. When we feel and struck by the shame and awful guilt, heavy load of that guilt, come to Jesus rather than go to the dark room. And our generation must be reminded by this before I move on to the point two. By Jesus' reassuring words, the the merciful forgiveness and non-condemning freedom, she's free to go, was literally free. There's nothing she has to do more. Absolutely free. But looking at this passage, our generation could think of it as Jesus says, just nice things. Neither do I condemn you. But you know what? The very sin that she committed or very sinful life that she even, she's been committing. Jesus died on the cross for that. It costed everything for her, or for him. It cost nothing for her. The sad reality of today's spirituality in America, local Bible-believing Christians, as if they, maybe we should say, we have graduated from the guilt. That we are purified in such a way that we can stand before God without shame because of our relatively moral, ethical life, law-abiding citizen life. The sneering eyes have forgotten our own sin, the depth of our depravity. Sisters and brothers, go take a look at your own sin. Don't turn away from it, even if it's so painful. Because there you will see the amazing grace. As I meditate on this more and more, few hymn lyrics came to my mind. I think as if God provided, you know, uh, our worship time when Jimmy, the part that Jimmy led, and I'm forgiven. Because you were condemned. Powerful things. But as I was meditating on this, two hymns came to my mind. One of them is the world-famous hymn, Amazing Grace. John Newton wrote it in 1779. But he didn't start it as a Christ follower. He was a slave trader, captain of slave trade, trading ship from Africa. March 21st, 1748, he wrote it in journal, My Great Turning Day. His ship was almost uh, destroyed by the storm, and he was hanging on to the wheel crying out to God. And this time, he wasn't cussing at God. He became like a child. Lord, have mercy. And God heard his prayer. And from that point on, he committed his life to Christ. 
later he became not only turned away from the slave trading, he gave his life to preaching of the gospel. He became a pastor. He learned from George Whitfield, people like John Wesley, of his contemporaries and spiritual, giant spiritual leaders. He teamed up with William Wilberforce, as you know, the one who fought and led the abolition of slave trading and law in England, right alongside of it. So these words are coming from his own depth of his realization. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Contemporary hymns try to sugarcoat that word. Oh, the word just wretch, that's too harsh. So some of the hymns you will see that say, that saved a soul like me, or that saved a sinner like me. But this was a deliberate choice of John Newton, a wretch. Because under the light of the gospel, under the light of God's righteousness, when our sins are exposed, his sect uh, slave trading was horrific to his eyes. He called himself wretch. It doesn't take sla- slave trading, but if we are being honest and being encountered by the light of the gospel, the light of God's righteousness, I too felt like wretch. When I was saved. John Newton goes. I I once was lost. Now. But now am found. Was blind. But now. I see. The second hymn. That came to me. With the melody. Was our great savior. Written by J. Wilbur Chapman in 1910. Jesus, what a friend of friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me. Foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Hallelujah. What a friend. Saving. Helping. Keeping, loving, he is with me to the end. Those who taste the light of the gospel and amazing grace and mercy and forgiveness, seeing the atoning death of Jesus for my sin, we would be compelled, even this morning. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, what a Savior, what a friend. That He would not condemn me. That He will stand with me. That He would be with me to the end. So brothers and sisters, the very sin that you feel so much shame about, the brokenness that you feel in your life is the entry level to experience God's love and mercy. Would you come to the cross? That's number two. 
is Jesus calls sinners to righteous living, not for achieving salvation, but for living out salvation received solely by his grace. Sometimes in our culture, we like to Jesus' word, neither do I condemn you. We say, oh, that's good. Thank you, Lord. And we move on. But there's a whole thing Jesus said it together. Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on. What? He didn't say, go. It doesn't matter how you live because of my forgiveness. I love you anyway. But Jesus said, go from now on, sin no more. Jesus gave her new purpose of life. From the, the depth of his, her depravity, maybe her sinful lifestyle, she couldn't have a hope that, oh, I'm, I'm through. My life is so messed up, how can I even restore anything? How can I even clean anything? I will never achieve the status that God demands. But Jesus gave her new purpose for life. No Not for achieving that status, but because of the, the grace that you receive, because of salvation that you receive freely, solely by good grace, and therefore live as a result, as a response. God saves you from the eternal damnation and, and snares of sin. And freed from sin so that you could live for God. So that you could live pure, righteous, holy living. So here's a critical question for all of us. I'm glad all of you have a right doctrine of salvation by grace. And grace alone. It is not by our works. But do you live to sin no more? Do you aim to sin no more? Or do you live a life of hyper grace in which you live as if your sins do not matter, really matter to Jesus anymore? Hyper grace is really not a grace. But let's remember the one lesson clearly that comes out is we should not, must not, ought not to rationalize small little sins in our lives. Saying, I'm only a human. By the power of the Holy Spirit, each Christians have the power to overcome sin's reign. We might fall. We could get up right away because of the power of the Holy Spirit. The problem is majority of our Christian life in modern day there is no aim for sin no more. Is it your temper? Is it your gossip? Is it your judgmental spirit? Is it your isolationism or cynicism? 
in 2020, in this new decade, new decade, the call of Jesus for us is to righteous living, to aim to sin no more. Third and last, the simple three lessons is summarized in this. And maybe this is the lesson that to which we need to most attention. Jesus calls us for repentance also from the greater sins of spiritual pride and hypocritical self-righteousness. Verse 7, allow me to read it again. Because Jesus would continually linger riding on the ground. Verse 7, as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at him. And once more he bent down and rode on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older one. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Notice why they ran away. You hear the thumping sound of the heavy stones dropping, starting with the older ones to the, to the younger ones. When Jesus said, let him who is without sin, whoever is sinless, be the first one, he gave, him a, gave them a mirror. You want to uphold the law, law, and you want to judge her because of the law. Now, let's look at the law and your face. Would you say you have not committed sin? And the older ones, because they have many years more, more opportunity to sin, and more realization to come. And then some of the old manuscripts, which included this, even specify the reason each one of them felt convicted by their conscience and then left. But most of them is like the version that we see. Because it's not even necessary to do that. Just the fact that they drastically went away reflects that. In a sense, Jesus judged the judges. And that's what's, what's, we need to pay attention to this morning. You see, the sins of spiritual pride and hypocritical righteousness is not on the visual level, usually. We could rationalize because our life is clean outside. In Matthew 23, verse 25 to 28, Jesus reveals this side specifically. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. One sure sign that you are not living by grace, a deep realization of hallelujah, what a savior, is this mindset. We are, in our estimation, better than others, better than someone else, better than this person, 
better than that person because I don't do such and such. And Jesus comes, reveals our heart. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Mourn for their sinfulness, depravity. Mourn for our community sin. This is the beckoning call I sense for our generation, with the Christ followers in America, and for Crossway Church family. C.S. Lewis, this is another one from Mere Christianity. which so powerful. And this came to me as I was just uh, meditating on that last point. C.S. Lewis writes, if anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity, which is sexual sin, as a supreme vice, he is quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting, the, the pleasures of power, of hatred. For there are two things inside of me competing with the human self, which I must try to become. They are the animal self, and the diabolical self. The diabolical self is the worst of the two. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But, of course, it is better to be neither. Brothers and sisters, let's come to the cross and see the river flowing for, of mercy and forgiveness and redemption that we sense and makes us to see hallelujah. What a savior, what a friend, amazing grace. And at the same time, Let's humble ourselves before God. Not posing to be humble, but because of our realization before the light of the gospel. The sinners are nearby us, including the, the, the ones that irreligious, secular, beer-drinking, sleeping around friends, that we will have compassion and mercy. And some of the, the conflicts and things that we struggle about in the light of the gospel, in light of our deep realization of God's grace, maybe, just maybe, forbearing love is doable. Accepting each other as they are my prayer for each one of us this morning and as we continue our journey as a Crossway family that we are known for grace not a conceptual things not a theological doctrinal statement but the grace that we receive that we show to one another that our arms are always open to each other, including the people who are very currently sinful and wretchedful. In the name of Christ's love, that we embrace, we welcome.
the next Sunday, in light of this, there is no one we should disqualify as I should invite. Not so for the sake of diversity, for the sake of grace, that we welcome every sinner to our community. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, thank you for your words. Neither do I condemn you. And thank you for your call for righteous living. Go now, from now on, sin no more. And we pray that you'll make us such a grateful, grace-filled church, as well as make us to be a holy living church righteous living church that we take sins seriously in our own sins as we show much mercy and grace to each other and thank you that you have paid the penalty through suffering and shame and taking rejection and abandonment and the excruciating pain in your on your on your death on the cross and for our redemption for our salvation and for our freedom from sin may the river flow of new revival of because of re this realization. In Jesus' precious holy name, we pray. Amen.